What a beautiful hymn. Well, last week uh, we've considered the, in chapter 15 the importance of a holy obedience to the Lord, of leaving, living obediently to God's word. Chapter 15 of 1 Samuel demonstrates that half obedience is no obedience at all. And that was very much what we were uh, focused on last week. We learned that God favors obedience that flows from a heart above all the sacrifices that we may perform outwardly. That God is more concerned about the inward, or he's firstly concerned about the inward before he's concerned about the outward. Half-hearted obedience is no obedience at all was the, the, the main message last week. But today, and this is, was very much a surprise to me, and that's how I ended up speaking to Peter about it. As on Monday, I got into the office and spent some time thinking through, meditating upon this, uh, the, the pr previous Lord's Day. And I realized that there was much more to say perhaps much more than I would say today, certainly much more than I would say today, but there was something else to say from chapter 15, so we, we remain for at least one more week in this chapter. For today, we will consider the de devastating effect of false repentance. You, we cannot really go through this chapter without speaking on the topic of repentance, can we? And I cannot overstate how important it is for us to grasp the, this topic. The difference between true repentance and false repentance is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And that's what I hope we uh, will uh, expound today, or we hope we will uh, grasp uh, a little bit more fully today. Because to be forgiven from sin, one must genuinely recognize, must genuinely and contritely present our, our sin before the Lord. And we need to understand this. Because there are a lot of people who say they repented. There are a lot of people that say they repent of, uh, of their mistakes. But is that true repentance? Saul would say that he's repentant in this passage, wouldn't he? Twice he says, I have sinned. He recognizes his sin. And yet, even without looking too much into it, we can perceive that this repentance is not the repentance that pleases the Lord, is it? So let us look from verse 24. Just as half-hearted obedience is no obedience at, at all, what we see in this passage is that half-hearted repentance is no repentance at all. Verse 24 marks a change from what we were considering last week for the first time. Saul recognizes his sin. He outwardly says it. I have sinned. I have disobeyed. But we see, don't we, there is still a heart in him that wants to excuse himself from that sin. He says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord, the Lord and your words, because I fear the people and obey their voice. Saul admits it. I sinned, and he admits even further, he admits why he sinned. Why did he sin? Because he feared the people. He feared the people. He, he admits that he dethroned God from his 
rightful place, and he placed the people there. Well, yeah. and, and this is me being generous because I don't think God was ever on the throne of, uh, of Saul's heart, as we'll see, but he dethrones God from, from the place where he should be, and he puts the people there, and because of that, he obeys the voice of the people. He heeds the voice of the people. It's the voice of the people and the people's desires. It's man that overrules his, his actions. And how many of us are like that? How many of us, it is the fear of man that overrules every decision we make. Not the fear of the Lord, not what the Lord would have us do, but what man wants us to do, or what the consequences of our actions would bring before man. Proverbs 29, verse 25, the whole old wise prof, uh, King Solomon says, the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man is a stumbling block. But he then goes on to say, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. In other words, fearing man becomes a snare, becomes a stumbling block. We don't actually fear our, free ourselves from danger by, by fearing man and the consequences. We actually become more open to, the, to, to danger. We don't get released from it. We get uh, in, pushed into it. Brothers and sisters, the real security of a Christian, the real safety of a Christian lies not in fearing man and trusting man, but lies in fearing and, and trusting the Lord. I know I'm stating the obvious, but sometimes we need to hear the obvious. Because we too can become like Saul in our actions. Not just the words of, of in Samuel, not just the words of King Solomon, the words of our Lord Jesus in the New Testament. He specifically speaks of this. In Luke, he says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. He's saying, do not fear man. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast you into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. I've heard once a, a, a preacher say that this is referring to the devil. No, it's not. The one who can kill and cast you into hell is God. God Christ is saying that you are to fear God before you fear man. Or do you, that you are to fear God and God alone, actually. Sadly, sadly for Saul, sadly for many of us, Sadly for this world, this unpenitent, unrepentant world, people do not fear God. They fear man, first and foremost. They fear man rather than fear God. That is the root of the problem. That is the root of the problem of sin in the world, because, uh, or the consequences of sin. That is the root of the problem in, the, uh, uh, in our Christian walk, when we become enamored by the world and fear the world or love the world more. It, it is the root of the problem in church life, when churches begin to fear man more than they fear, or rather than they fear the Lord. And verse 25 also shows us, doesn't it? Shows us that Saul does not yet seem to understand the seriousness of his sin. Oh, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. He doesn't understand, does he? His sin wasn't against Samuel. 
first and foremost. His sin wasn't against a man. It was against God. It's almost as Saul was saying, look, I, okay, mea culpa here, I did some wrong. I, I, I fully recognize that. I, I overstepped. I, I messed up. But can we just go back to normal? I know he doesn't say that here, but that's the attitude. That's actually how we so often express our repentance. I know I did wrong. Can we just go back to things being normal again? That's what he wants. He minimizes the seriousness of sin. That's not true repentance, is it? True repentance doesn't minimize the seriousness and the gravity and the, and the, and the weightiness of sin. Genuine repentance always recognizes the, the truthfulness and the, the reality of sin. He wants Samuel to accompany him. He wants to, to, to rationalize his sin. And he wants things to go back to normal. But brothers and sisters, that's the source of, lack of, of, uh, that's the source of uh, false repentance. Apologies. That's the source where false repentance comes from. Uh, uh, rationalizing, uh, explaining away, uh, uh, minimizing of sin. Instead of having a broken and a contrite heart, as we saw and we'll look in a moment in Psalm 51 in David, as instead of realizing the gravity of the sin is committed, he comes to the place of repentance with stipulations. Can we just get on with it? Okay, I, re I recognize I made a mistake. Can we just get on and go back to normal? True repentance never comes with stipulations, does it? True repentance is a repentance that, that puts no, no conditions. In fact, contrast Saul's repentance, quotes, contrast Saul's repentance with, a, with a con the repentance of the prodigal son in our Lord's parable. He recognizes his sin. He comes to his senses in Luke 15. He recognizes his sin and he goes to his father. He says, Father, I've sinned before you and before God and before heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's, there's no stipulation there. That is a plea. That's not, not the prodigal son making a stipulation. He's saying, I'm not worthy of anything. But if only you would treat me like one of your hired servants. Let's listen to how Paul describes it. And this is very important because true repentance flows from godly sorrow. And well, I'll, I'll, I'll show you how, uh, how this is. Uh, and false repentance flows from worldly sorrow. Let, let's listen to the words of Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 8 to 10. We read this, for even if I make you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry. This is him speaking about the first letter, the first Corinthians, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner. What is Paul saying? There is a way of being sorry in a worldly man manner. 
in a fleshly manner. There is a way of feeling sorry, not in a way that honors God and leads to true repentance, but there is a way of feeling sorry in a worldly manner that, that seeks to resolve things, not for God's benefit, but for the person's benefit. I continue, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So what is godly sorrow? What is worldly sorrow? Well, godly sorrow is a deep, sincere feeling of remorse and sadness that arises from a realization of one's sins against God. It's not just the mere, oh, I fear the consequences. For, for Saul, it was. He was sorry he got caught. He was sorry that he got caught and he got uh, taken away the kingdom. He was sorry that his sin would now impact the rest of his life. He was sorry about all those things. But that not, that's not godly sorrow. He was feeling sad because of the consequences of his sin. Not about the reality of, of what his sin had done to the heart of God. Figuratively speaking, of course. Godly sorrow is a heartfelt response to the understanding of how one's actions has grieved God. This sorrow leads to genuine repentance. You understand how your sin grieves God and how your sin uh, puts a barrier in your relationship and in your communion with God and you want to take that away because you want to glorify God. You want that favor from God. You want to be in a good relationship with God. You see, the difference is very simple. Worldly sorrow is focused on self. What I get out of it. Is it convenient and expedient for me? Godly sorrow is focused on God, first and foremost. And our passage, sadly, shows us that Saul was rich in worldly sorrow, but very lacking and very poor in godly sorrow. Sadly, he was a person who lost touch with God's worth, if he ever had it, which is generous to say. He will not be able, he will not, he is not able to perceive his condition before God. And sadly, that is the truth for many of us, even believers. We can at times become so, I have the Portuguese word in my head, strangely, and I, I don't know the direct translation, but we can, when you, when you get a wound and you heal it uh, with something hot, you cauterize, is that the word, cauterizing a wound? Yeah, get it. You can get cauterized to sin, hardened to sin. It, it no longer feels anything. It's, 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 it's no longer present. In, in our hearts can become cauterized to sin. I hope I'm not inventing a word now, but you understand what I'm saying. Our hearts can become so hardened to the reality of sin, of sin, because we've rationalized it, because we've explained it away, because we, we've uh, excused ourselves from it. That's why it is important for us to have a correct view of sin, for us to, first of all, Deal with sin promptly when we see it. Oh, there are so many who, who 
upon the first signs of sin in their life, upon the first time that they see sin creeping up, they don't deal with it immediately. They don't put to death the sin at that moment. And eventually that sin was so small and rationalized at the time becomes a, a big thing. But the person is no longer able to, to see it for what it is. David's example of repentance is a much better example of repentance than Saul's. It's a godly example of repentance. Look at how David expresses it. Psalm 51, we read it, but I'll read it again. Have mercy upon me, O God. He's dealing with God, not with Saul. He's dealing with God first. According to your loving kindness. He's pleading, not, not his worthiness, not in his position. He's not setting stipulations. He's pleading with God for his loving kindness. He's pleading God's character. According to the multitude of your tender, mercy, tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. How different. He pleads, verse 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God. As if he recognizes that unless God is at work in his heart, he will not persevere. He will not stand a chance. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. You want to see the contrast. The nature of Saul's repentance and the nature of David's repentance is diametrically opposed. It's like black and white. It's, it's like water and wine. They are two completely different things. Samuel's repentance was driven by fear of losing his position, his honor, his, his, his status. It was worldly sorrow. He was more focused, his focus was on the consequences of his actions. David's repentance was heartfelt, genuine. He acknowledged it was before God and God alone. He recognized that his sin was ultimately against God. He pleaded mercy, cleansing, and a renewed heart. David's was, focus was not on the consequences, even though his sin was that much graver that much more heinous than the sin of Saul, humanly speaking. If we are to categorize sin, and we need to be careful, but if we were to categorize the, the moral uh, depravity of, of both sins, I think none of us would, would argue that uh, <laughs> David's sin was lighter. It was a worse, more heinous, more more visible and clearly more damaging sin to himself and to others. And yet he was not focused on the consequences of his loss, of other things he would lose. He was focusing on the fact that he had broken the relationship that he had with God. And the outcome of their repentance is clear. One was forgiven, the other wasn't. Saul's kingdom was eventually taken away. His lineage did not continue the dynasty. 
There was only the one uh, king in the dynasty of Saul. Because his repentance was not true. Then flow from a godly sorrow. David's repentance, notwithstanding that his sin was so much graver, heinous, uh, humanly speaking, was true. And he was forgiven. And his throne was established forever. And our Lord Jesus Christ came from that dynasty. You see, brothers and sisters, as I said, half-hearted obedience is no obedience at all. That was last week. Half-hearted repentance is no repentance at all. Saul wanted to get back to normal. He wanted to explain things away. He was minimizing his sin, but it doesn't work, does it? Not for the Lord. It might fool others. Our, our false repentance might fool us even. Might fool our brothers and sisters. Might fool the church. Might fool our families. Might fool even ourselves. But you know who is not deceived. It's God who sees the heart. True repentance is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And in verse 26, I know we're going slowly here, but we'll pick up our pace now. It says, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. There is a connection between repentance and, and accepting and the, uh, repentance and between embracing God's word. The psalmist, Psalm 119, verse 10 says, With my whole heart I have sought you. And you ask the psalmist, How is it that you have sought the Lord with all your heart? Well, it's Psalm 119. The answer is, is obvious. Let me not wander from your commandments. To seek the Lord with all your heart, to have a, a, a steadfast attitude in following after God, is akin to, is equivalent to, not wandering from God's word, not wandering from God's uh, commands, being obedient to him. If you stray from God's law, if you stray from God's holy law, holy, uh, holy word, if you become disobedient, you, you are not wholeheartedly following the Lord. And we see the consequences of his false repentance. And we'll, here we pick up there's this, this temper seemed to have flared into verse 27. Samuel turns away to go away, but Saul seizes him. He grabs hold of him. He re rips the, the hem of the garment, the, the, the edge of his robe. It, it gets torn away. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the tunics that Middle Eastern uh, folk use. They are not made out of tissue paper. It, it, what conveys to us is that this, the tempers were flaring, the, brew, the, that there, were, there was um, anger in Saul. Someone wrote that bruised egos are like that. Bruised egos. Saul's ego was bruised. He's not repentant. He wants things to go back to normal. And Samuel interprets this and says, well, just like you've torn, 
my clothes is, is him saying, I will not return with you because you have been torn. You have been rejected. You have rejected the word of the Lord. You have been torn from the kingship over Israel. All his sacrifices, all his fake repentance, all his desire to go and worship the Lord your God. As he would say to Samuel, it was all for show. It was all to recover. It was all to save face. And Samuel says those terrible words. And that's where the connection to Hebrews is. Because for, Samuel, for Saul... For Saul, this was his last chance. He says that the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. For he is not a man that he should relent. For Saul, it seems this was final. His last chance to obey was given at the beginning of chapter 15. He did not obey. He did not repent. And it seems that this is the close, uh, closing of the matter. Brothers and sisters, God is slow to anger. And he never rejects a broken and a contrite heart. But there is such a thing as we've seen and we'll see in a moment in Hebrews chapter 3, chapter 6, in, six, in those warning passages in, in, uh, in the book of Hebrews. There is such a thing as being too far gone. Of being so hardened to sin that... Repentance is not possible anymore. Hebrews chapter 10. Even though the Lord is, yes, slow to anger, we know that the God is abundant in mercy, that he is abundant in steadfast love. The reality is that God will, at one point or the other, remove his slowness to anger. Hebrews chapter 10, how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. This warning is not for unbelievers out there. This warning is not for unrepentant people out there. This warning comes to those who are in the fold, who otherwise seemingly are believers, repentant, contrite, broken over their sins. But they've hardened their hearts. They've tasted of the power. But they've relapsed says it is an awful thing, a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the, of the living God. There is an interesting point here, and I'll just touch upon it quickly before I get to the, to the conclusion. Interesting point is that eventually Samuel does uh, come out with Saul to worship the Lord. But it seems like Samuel had a second, uh, and hit, uh, another idea about this process. Because this process was actually meant to show the disobedience of Saul. He asked for Agag to be brought. Agag gets 
just payment for his sins. But that's besides the point for this evening's sermon. But again, Saul recognized his sin. But for him it was too late. There is no honor for the unrepentant. And Samuel says here those very sad words. Those very sad words for, for Saul. Samuel went to Ramah, verse 34, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The reality for Saul, after this chance, after this last chance that he was given to be obedient, the reality is that no longer he walked with the Lord. No longer he heard the, the God speak to him through his prophet. No longer he had Samuel, the prophet of God, the man of God in his life. Samuel's departure is much more than just him going. Samuel's departure marks the fact that the Lord removed his spirit from him. That the Lord removed his, uh, his anointing from him. And uh, also it is interesting that Samuel mourned. Brothers and sisters, it gives no pleasure to, to a preacher to preach on these things. It gives me no pleasure, honestly, to preach on these subjects. We don't like preaching on, on judgment and hell. Well, maybe some do. I don't like it. I don't like uh, seeing people fall into sin. And Samuel wept for Saul because he loved Saul. He loved Saul deeply. He was like a son to him. Bear in mind, Samuel, at this time, he was uh, well into his uh, latter years. He was aged. And Saul was a young man. He probably looked to him as a, as a son of sorts. So he gave him no pleasure to the prophet to see Saul fall into this sin. In the same vein that he gives God no pleasure to slay the wicked. Make no mistake, God slays the wicked. And he does rightly. But he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Again, that language of repentance. The pleasure of God is that the wicked would repent, but they don't. Turn ye, turn ye from your wicked ways. Why should you die? O house of Israel. And the point is that God is grieved by sin. If we are God's people, we too should be grieved by sin. It, it was my sin that, le that held Christ in that cross. My sin past and is my sin present and my sin future. I should be grieved to the, my heart of hearts. Even though the world doesn't know of my sin. The fact that Christ sees my sin, that he knows my sin, it was my sin that held him there. Should grieve the heart of every single Christ disciple, the one who says they love Christ, that the, the Christ is their all in all. It should grieve our hearts to sin. First and foremost, because it breaks the heart of our Lord who loved us to the point of death. I think the question, and I'll 
I think we need to deal with this. And I've touched upon it, but at the beginning of this series in Saul, as we talked about Saul, the question is always, as we consider the life of Saul, is was Saul a believer? Was Saul a true believer? Are those that Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 uh, speak of true believers? What about the security of the saints, you ask? Well, I think it is clear, and I hope I made that clear over the, the, this exposition, because we, we're going to pause the book of Samuel for, for a few months again, but I hope it became clear that Saul is not a true believer. He doesn't display any of the qualities of a true believer. And again, qualities here is not uh, that uh, you're eminently a saint, with a sinless saint, but know that you have a heart of, of a desire for that obedience of faith. David had it, and that's demonstrated in Psalm 51 and in other places. Saul never had it, never demonstrated it. So Saul is not an example of a believer who falls away from and loses his salvation. Just as well that the, the ones in Hebrews 3, Hebrews 6 are not that. But they are examples of those who have come so close, have tasted even, have had a, a, a little bit of light shown upon them. And they, yet they've rationalized their sin. And... In time, in the process of time, given enough time, they've demonstrated where their true allegiances are. Because the language of Hebrews that uh, there was the, were those that were enlightened is what Saul uh, went through. Saul is the perfect example of those in, in the book of Hebrews that the author of Hebrews speaks of. Those that have experienced the power of the age to come. Saul experienced that. He was even blessed by the anointing of the Spirit. The empowering of the Spirit. So it is impossible for those to restore such a person again to repentance. And for us it is a warning. Because the, the heart that is transformed is a heart that is a, that seeks after obedience we won't be obedient 100% of the times the best of us we are sinners that uh, still we are a massive contradiction the the best man is man at, uh, is a man at best we will still be sinners but is there a deep yearning to put away sin in our lives what about when Word of God says that those who come to him, they will never perish. No one will snatch them for their, from their hands. Yes, but that promise is for those who are elect from God. What about the promise that he who began the good work will finish it? Yes, it, the promise is for those who God started the good work. In which God began the good work. In the case of Saul, the work of Saul, the, the kingdom of Saul, was started by, not by God, but by, the, by sinful Israel, sinful requests from Israel. There are great promises of eternal salvation. There are great promises that assure us that we are safe under the hands, in the hands of God, that no one will snatch us away. But those promises are only for the elect, and the proof of us being elect is seen through our works in obedience to God. 
a person who is elect will seek to serve the Lord. There's a pastor, in a, an American pastor, he tells this terrible story. This is a true story, it's not an illustration. He tells a story of a woman that he met when he went to one of his visiting ministry. He was preaching in a church as a preacher, visiting preacher, and uh, he preached there a few times, so he got to know the people uh, with some confidence. And there was this woman this woman was married to an unbeliever. This woman was married to an unbeliever and, and um, she didn't like the fact that she was married to an unbeliever and she came and sought the advice of, of the pastor. She struggled with that. And over the conversation with the, with the woman, the pastor says that he perceived something in, a, in something that she said about another man that she had met. And the, the alarm bell started going off Another man, a Christian man, a widow's man that he, she had met on the school run with the kids. And, and the pastor asked the woman, have you done something that you shouldn't? And the woman was firm. She said, yes. And the pastor warned her not to do it. You know what the woman did? She justified herself. She said, well... This man is a man of God. This man is, is a believer. And, and I do all these things. It's, it's, it's ser certainly not a, a grave thing. I'm, I'm, I'm married to an unbeliever. He doesn't respect me. He doesn't respect my, my God. And, and she justified. She rationalized her sin. Years later, the pastor came to find out that the woman had divorced her husband, had married this other man, uh, but eventually this other man divorced her and her life was turned upside down. She eventually died in a car accident. The consequences, besides the human consequences there, the, the material consequences, the fact is she made, a, she made a, the, the decision to rationalize her sin, to make it uh, palatable. She justified it with other things she has done, with, with the circumstances that she was facing. And that's what we do. We rationalize. She had her reasons. She had her motives. Just like Saul. Just like we do so many times. We rationalize. The reality is we're rejecting truth, the truth of God. We blame others. We blame time. We blame circumstances. The problem is when we rationalize, we become hardened. That's the word. We become hardened to the reality of sin. God doesn't ask us to rationalize. God, God doesn't care about us rationalizing. In fact, God is displeased by us rationalizing our disobedience. God, what he wants us to do is to repent. All of us, believers and unbelievers alike, God now commands everyone everywhere in light of what he did on that cross, repent. No rationalism. Repentance. He doesn't want your sacrifices. As Saul, Samuel said to Saul, he wants your obedience. He wants your submission. He doesn't want your, 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 your outward show of obedience. He wants your inner heart of submission. 
This story of ours is an invitation to all of us, believers and unbelievers alike. It is an invitation for us not to follow the way of Saul, to learn from Saul's mistake when, while we still have time, because there comes a time, if not sooner, it comes a time when we die, where repentance will no longer be on the table as an option. The reality is it even comes before then. It comes before death for all of us. There is one last invitation that we all receive. If we are not in Christ, there will be a day that we'll receive the last invitation to turn to God. And we'll make little of it. And that will be the last time. And then comes death. However, how much time after that last invitation. But no longer the offer is standing. But the invitation for us today is that. Look at Saul, learn from his mistakes, turn to God. When I say that it's too late to repent, I mean that there are times we've become so hard and that it becomes too late. But the offer stands. Whenever the offer comes, it is well meant by God. Repent and believe. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The question is, do we repent? Are we willing to admit our sin? Are we willing to turn to God? Samuel, because he was inspired by God, he knew that this was the last time that Saul would have that chance. We don't know. For us, we're too far gone. For you, if you're too far gone. But while there's life, there's hope, and you should turn. As Paul says to the Galatians, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Let's watch over our souls. Let's take care, lest there be any, in any of you, an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And how should the church react to this kind of message? The, the author of Hebrews says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. May the Lord give us that desire. May the Lord help us.